everyone, this is That Guy in Hutch, Jason Probst, and you're listening to That Podcast in Hutch. Today I have somebody in the studio with me who was trying to think about how to describe him. All I could think was, uh, this is a guy who has done a lot of different things in his life, but the, the word that comes to mind quickest for me when I think about John is uh, resilient. Is uh, One of the things that, that really brought, wanted me to bring him in was the fact that this uh, summer he was in a bicycle accident where he was riding and he got hit by a guy on a motorcycle. And uh, next thing I knew, he was out riding again and it didn't seem to take very long at all for him to recover. But in addition to this, he's got an over 30-year career in the military He's on the South Hutchinson City Council and uh, has has been a longtime resident of this area and has lived a, a pretty interesting life. So, John, thanks for coming in today. Hey, thank you, Jason. I really appreciate it. Uh, resiliency is a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, I mentioned the, the bicycle accident and that that was kind of one of the things that I really want to talk about. But I, I want to back up a little bit from that and and talk about a couple of other things. Um, first being your military service. You said you were in the Army and the Army Reserves for 33 years, right? Yes, sir. I joined in July of 1986, uh, active duty. And then when I got off of uh, active duty at the end of 1989, um, I waited about a year and then I joined the Army Reserve. And I've been back and forth between being a weekend a month soldier and uh, full-time as an active guard or reserve soldier. And I spent uh, a grand total of 33 years and I retired April of 19. And then you're still kind of, you know, adjacent to military service now because you, in, in your role now, you're kind of a, a, a contractor or private support person, right? Uh, I work for the Department of the Army. I'm a Department of the Army civilian and I'm, I'm a safety. So the 451 ESC who I work for in Wichita, Kansas, uh, we take care of about 4,000 soldiers in a six state area and uh, they hired me to be the safety. And so what I do is check out building safety, facility safety, run a motorcycle mentorship program and um, fire safety and things like that in regard to uh, how the soldiers are at the, in, you know, in the four, five, one. Now, when you were active duty, what, what sort of, uh, well, I'm, I'm curious to know about any, overseas deployment or combat duty, but also kind of what your primary role was during your active duty years. So when I joined, I was an accountant. And so I, I did that at Fort, Fort Hood, Texas. And then as a reservist, um, I became an ordinance specialist up in Nebraska. And during that time, I actually got mobilized and deployed over to the European theater for uh, Operation Joint Endeavor, which was in Bosnia. Mm -hmm. So I didn't go to Bosnia or anywhere. I went to Germany and I ran the uh, finance office over in Wiesbaden, Germany for nine months. And then I went, I, I came back. In 2004, uh, I got called up again and I deployed to Fort Riley. And when they decided not to let troops into Turkey and stage in Turkey, they demobbed us because that's that's how the laws are. They felt like if they couldn't get a year out of us in theater, that they would rather send us back home and send somebody else back. And after and after that, I, I have been deployed a couple times, but never never to theater. I've been to Fort Campbell. 
Uh, I've been to Fort Hood. I've been to a couple of places and they've just never seen fit to send the old guy over to theater, I guess. <laughs> well, it, when you said you were an accountant, I, it struck me that it, it is true that there really is a job for anyone in the military, right? You never think that there's a need for accountants, <clears throat> but there is. You have bookkeeping that needs to be done. Yeah, they. well, my primary job, well, there's two different kinds of accounting. So there's accounting like pay the soldiers or whatever. And then there's also accounting like contracting. Okay. So there's usually like two different offices on a, on a base. And so the contracting will pay for, you know, the copiers and everything that goes in the food that comes into the DFAC and all that kind of stuff. So it's like a city. So when you're the, or the army is like a big business. Mm -hmm. And so every big business has got a comptroller and a comptroller's office. Yeah. And so that's kind of what a finance office is. And the comptroller's office in a big business they do the same same thing. Some of them pay the people and some of them pay contracts. And every base is basically a city. You yeah, know, you have infrastructure, you have yep. all these things that are going on, right? Yep. Yeah. You got oh. guys that fix the buildings, guys that build, build the buildings, you guys pumping gas, you've got guys at the hospital, you've got guys everywhere. There is a job for everyone. Yeah, that that's amazing when you think about all the all the moving parts of something. I, I actually have a friend and his, his son is in the army band. Really? See, people would never think like, oh, there's a, I mean, every once in a while you see like, oh, where, how do these guys get in the band? Yeah. And so if you know somebody that it's, it's quite a process and they're very elite. Yeah. Kind of, kind of band, band members, but it's, it'd be cool duty. And then, um, there's also one of the soldiers I know pretty good that he's out of Haven and, uh, he was part of the President's 100, or or the people that um, mar marched in front of the tomb. Oh wow! And all that. Yeah. So that's the. And I've <clears throat> known uh, when I was in high school. You know, I was involved in music pretty heavily, and it was always known that the army, army and air force bands were two of the best bands that you'd ever come across. Yeah, they're pretty hard to get into. Yeah, yeah. You, they you, wouldn't you, let me in. I'm sure. <laughs> So during your, like some, somewhere in there while, while you're in active duty, you, I can't remember what year you told me before, but you, you became kind of involved in competitive cycling and, and running and, and things like that. I did back in uh, 99, I decided that I might be getting too old to play basketball all the time. So I wanted to find a different sport. And uh, my sister said, Hey, let's sign up for a triathlon. And I figured, you know what? I can do that. I can run. I can swim. I'll do whatever. I was a swimmer in high school. So I decided I would do that. And I, I really enjoyed riding the bike. So I did the triathlon, but I kept biking more. Yeah. And so I have done some triathlons, but I, I really like cycling. And I cycled a lot in the time I was living in Nebraska. Uh, There's pretty active guys up there. And, you know, we rode and um, I'm a competitive person. So if you have a race, I'll probably sign up for it. <laughs> Yeah, and you you you've raced for quite a while with a, a group here, uh, and we see I see you guys usually blowing. If I'm on the road, you're blowing past me. But um, tell me a little bit about that group. I do slow down and chit chat, Jason. You know that. <laughs> I do know that. Well, well, I, so I'm the president of that, and that's the Midwest Masters Cycling Team. Prior to that, it was River City Racing, and the person that ran it was a guy named Doctor Bob Bruce, and he turned it over to me in 2010. And I've kind of ran it ever since. We put on races here in town and we put on rides and we put on races in Wichita and we try to have just uh, a good group of people and we try to get together and have group rides. And, uh, you know, it's about 
camaraderie and fitness. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, we do sometimes ride fast and ride past past people. Uh, a lot of people don't know, but Hutchinson is on the transcontinental bike route. Mm -hmm. And so if you ride on a Saturday or a Sunday morning and you're up on 95th Street or 82nd, you can see people coming by with all their bags and different stuff. And uh, we, we always slow down and ask them, you know, hey, where are you from? Where are you going? I'm always curious. You see people with uh, solar panels on the uh -huh. front of their bike, like charging up batteries and stuff like that. You see some some different stuff. And it's always nice to chit-chat chit with them. Sometimes they ask you like, you know, hey, where's a good place to eat or where's a good place for whatever. So I feel like we're doing our little uh, Reno County service or whatever by trying to help out the transcontinental guys. I love that, particularly like uh, May and June is when I tend to see most of the transcontinental riders. And I'm like you, I always try to catch them and talk to them because I it's, you never know where they're from. A lot of times I, I'll talk to them and they're from uh, England or yeah, France or somewhere in Europe. Uh, and it's just fascinating to me that they're out here. I've even, last year, I think I ran across a pretty young kid. I think he was maybe 16 or so and he was doing it. And I thought it's pretty remarkable the the stories you can get out of that. Yeah, I've seen them. They've either been loaded down. I even met one one guy one day that was pretty fast. He was a college kid, and apparently he was traveling across the country. And all he had was like some flip flops and a pair of shorts and his debit card. And that's it. And that's it. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what? He was like, yeah, they get you know the warm showers website. He got some places to stay, and he just was like, I'm going to do this low tech or whatever. And he was riding a lot of miles, but you know, from, from riding bikes that if you don't have to carry any stuff on your bike, you can really ride a it's lot all faster. It's better. Yeah. Yeah. So he was, he was getting after it. Well, it's funny and it probably is worth taking a minute to explain to listeners who don't cycle and don't know some of these things on that transcontinental trail and, and throughout the country, there's a whole kind of underground network of, of places for cyclists to stay or get resupplied. Uh, if you join the Adventure Cycling Association, you can get the transcontinental maps and and see where all the hostels are. And uh, if you get that, you'll find out that at Hutchison, if you go to Harley's, you can find out where you can stay here in town. And, and there's a place over in Newton you can stay. Uh, and then Warm Showers is another one where you can get on there and find yep. people that are willing to support a cyclist for a, for a night or two. Yeah, I have some friends out in Dodge that kind of do it. And they kind of like when they, when you roll up they decide whether or not they want to let you sleep in their basement or let you sleep in their backyard yeah <laughs> I, I mean because well you know you've seen some of these people on the road it was like mm, you know what they're having a good time we'll just let it we'll let it be at that yeah you know give them a nice shower and maybe go outside and get them something to eat but they're not really wanting to stay in your house yeah uh i mean i've especially for a woman i would think it was a little it'd be a little weird yeah it's a yeah some discretion's probably in order there i have a friend in nickerson that does that a lot too and she's hosted hundreds of cyclists over the years because it runs through nickerson yep. too and uh she just loves it and she loves the stories that she's gotten out of that yeah we did i i did bak one time and uh, we got on the website for the warm showers and found out like where that correlated with uh bak nights night stays oh yeah and and so that was one way we used to like to not, not have, have to, to put do, up a tent <laughs> yeah. and not have to do the shower at the, in the cold water at the middle school gymnasium. Exactly. We stayed <laughs> in some pretty good ones or whatever. I'm pretty clever about stuff like that. That's a good plan. I'm going to put that one in my notebook. <laughs> <laughs> so 
in this time, so tell me about the competitive cycling. You said you're competitive, um, and I like cycling, but I've never been like I've I've never wanted to do much of the competitive cycling. But you, what what is thrilling about that to you? I guess uh, I don't know. I'm a competitive person, so if I go play basketball with you, I'm going to try to beat you at basketball or beat you at golf. It's nothing. There's nothing bad. I don't mind losing per se. I'm I'm old enough now to understand. You know, losing's okay. Yeah. I started riding bikes and we have, we have a couple guys and everybody, you know, you get type A personality mm-hmm. people and, you know, you, you race to the town line sprint or you race or whatever. One guy plays like try to get away or, you know, you watch a couple movies and you decide, Hey, I want to do that. You know, maybe my army and having to do the two mile run every six months and you want to run faster. So you want to ride faster and you just kind of, get in that kind of mode and some people work better if they're training for an event. Yeah. So if you have an event to train for, it gives you the reason to, to go ride the reason to go drive. But like I have told you before, and I tell everybody that people that race bicycles generally like to ride bicycles first. Yeah. Because if you don't like spending time on your bike, you're probably not going to be very good at racing either. And I, I can go ride with my friends at 10 miles an hour, 15 miles an hour, at 20 miles an hour. It's all about riding out in the countryside with friends. Yeah. And I, I give you trouble sometimes about how fast you guys ride or how fast I know you can ride. But you do have kind of a fun ride that you do at least during the summer and fall months, right? You start at uh, Salt City Brewery and go out and make a run and then come back for some yeah. beer, right? Yeah, we try to do that on Thursday nights in the summer, and we try to get two different groups. It kind of depends on who shows up. Uh, Steve Peterman rides bikes. I don't, pe- people don't know that. He's got his bike up in there, and if I call him up and say, hey, Steve, air up your tires and find your helmet, he'll <laughs> he'll throw his stuff on if he's not too busy, and he'll come ride with us. And uh, the slower people, or maybe not slower, but just ones that don't run a ride as far, will go like 15 miles, 10, 15 miles. And then the other guys will go like 25. And then we'll all try to have a beverage at uh, Salt City afterward. And we kind of do that. And then they they also try to hit up second Saturday's rides Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, in the summer. And those are not fast. You know, that's generally to breakfast and back. And they go to Bueller one time. They go to Pleasantville one time. They go to Yoder, Yoder and yeah. then I don't know if they go Nick, to another one. They used to go to Nickerson. Yeah, Nickerson, yeah, Nickerson to yeah. Sunny Side Cafe or whatever yep. it is. <clears throat> and some sometimes we'll stop and eat breakfast. I mean if you if the if the weather is bad, we'll stop and eat breakfast and ride back with them. If the weather weather's good, we'll just drop them off and go con- on. Continue on. I mean, but it's always good to meet other people, encourage other people. I think the the more people are on the road, I feel like it makes it safer for you and I. Yeah. If if everybody rode bikes, there would be a lot less problems with getting hit because you would be used to I feel I feel the safest riding my bike places that I know that other people ride bikes. Mm-hmm. Like even though people tend to drive pretty quick on 82nd Street, really haven't had a lot of problem out there because like you said, the summertime, the transcontinental guys are going, we're always out there. Uh Ron Fister is always out there riding. There's there's a lot of people that ride on 82nd oh, yeah. Street. So you'd think the locals see you. They get kind of trained to watch for cyclists on yeah. those roads, right? I feel like yeah. that. Yeah. <clears throat> Old 61 is another one. Yep. 
I mean, even though they had an incident out there a couple of years ago, old 61 is another one. There's a lot of cyclists and there's a big wide shoulder. Yeah. So, you know, that's a good one to ride on. I feel pretty good on, on that one. I feel really good down by where I live in South Hutch on trails West mm-hmm. and Whiteside. Um, that's where we do a lot of riding in the summer because you want to ride into the wind. And if the wind is blowing from the south, you want to head south. And so Whiteside's a good one to go to and Arlington Road and Parallel. And I know they see lots of cyclists out there. And besides those guys are, I mean, they're farmers and they usually like slow down and wave and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I feel pretty safe. And anybody that's came and visited me and gone and rode out in the country side of Reno County has felt pretty safe. And, uh, you know, they kind of like, hey, I'm kind of jealous of the good riding that you have. It's flat and it's yeah. windy and it's hot, but dang, the cars are kind of friendly. Yeah, there, it's not that way everywhere. There are some places where the drivers oh, are a lot less friendly to cyclists. Yeah, I, I mean, I raced and I also did race across America. Mm-hmm. So I, I've ridden in a lot of states or whatever. And I've ridden through St. Louis and rush hour traffic. And yeah. <laughs> I'm not signing up to do another one anytime. I mean, if if they asked me to do one for them, I, I would, but I'm not going to go ride over there just for the heck of it. When did you do Race Across America? 2012. Okay. And what is that? Is that people know about that like super fast people are trying to get through as, on the trans trail as quick as they can, but what is the Race Across America? So the Race Across America was pre- a precursor to the transcontinental race. Okay. So it starts in Oceanside, California, and it goes to Annapolis, Maryland. So roughly 3,000 miles. How, how long does that take so most I did it, riders? I did it as an eight-man eight team with the Wounded Warrior Project. Uh, I did it in seven days, two hours, and 50 minutes as part of a team. So we do it like a giant four-by-100 relay. So we had like four guys sleeping in the, the motor coach and four people riding one at a time and you rode as fast as you could for 45 minutes or so and then hand it off to the next guy and we would do that. And so our four man team would would do about 200 miles and then the next four man team would do 200 miles and we did that across the country. Okay. And in addition to eight man teams, there's four man teams, two man teams and individuals. So the individuals, some some of the individuals, like 10 days, Wow. 11 days. That's, I mean, that's spending a lot of hours on a bike all day. They're pretty tired when they get to Kansas. They they come through Kansas on Highway 54. Okay. So you could go see them in May's in June. It's like the first week in June. And you can go see them. And they're they're pretty – We they start the one-man and two-man out on like a Tuesday, and we started on a Friday, and we started catching one- and two-man – race across America competitors in Kansas. Okay. And, and then after that, um, we, we were catching them all the way to Annapolis. Yeah. And the wind, the wind, when I see people from out of state or see people on the Transamerica Trail, the wind is what they talk about. They're, they're not used to that wind here. So we had, so that year, 2012, we had two different Wounded Warrior Project teams. And I was the ca- the captain of the one with, some wounded warriors. Um, and then they had another team of elite cyclists, like pro level cyclists. And so the pro level cyclists came, hit Kansas a day before we hit Kansas. And they had, it was a hundred degrees, but they had a prevailing 
southwest westerly wind. Okay. So they rode across the state of Kansas at like 32, 35 miles an hour. Yeah. Right. So one day later, uh, we hit Kansas. It was the same hundred degrees, but the wind had turned around and it was coming from the southeast <laughs> easterly wind. And so we rode across Kansas at about 15 and uh, the rest of the guys that were on my team said they don't ever want to come back to Kansas. <laughs> It takes a lot out of, I mean, and I, even riders from other areas of the state, when I do bike across Kansas, the wind is, if you're not from a windy area, we have a joke out in Southwestern Kansas that if the wind stops blowing, all the cyclists fall over because they're used to leaning. <laughs> I can uh, see that. <laughs> I, I noticed my last year at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, uh, when I was deployed there, I hooked up with some cyclists and I would go to their group rides and they would complain if it was 10 miles an hour. <laughs> we, we, it's almost uncomfortable if the wind's not at least 10 miles an hour. I think they even, uh, if you watch the weather, if you get on and look at the weather in like Tennessee, the weatherman says it's going to be really windy today it's going to be five to 15 from the whatever direction. <laughs> right. And when, and when I watch the news in Kansas, five to 15 is a mild day. They don't even mention it. No, they don't even mention it. They don't mention it until it gets to be that 15 to 20, a little breezy. And then if it says 25 or more, then it's going to be windy. Yeah. 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 We don't even, we don't even give it a second thought. Yeah. They have no idea. They have no idea. Well, so, so you're, I want to come up to, uh, in 2005, you're, you're riding competitively and you're racing and you, you ran a race, I think in the Flint Hills. Bizarre. Yeah. And after that, you didn't feel well on the way home. You didn't feel well. And you, you, you went to the hospital, went to the doctor and they said, you're having a heart attack. And, And when that was all said and done, you were in Salt Lake city getting a heart transplant. Well, I, they did triple bypass that night. Um, Dr. Levinson was the guy that did my triple bypass. And so, but that, that I, the blood flow was cut off for over 12 hours. So what that does is destroy a lot of heart tissue. And so they didn't know if I would need a transplant or they didn't know what, but they were surprised that I was alive. And I went home, that was in April of 2005, but I was in heart failure. And I wasn't really getting any better. I actually was getting worse. And so they, the decision was made that I should go to Salt Lake City in July. And I went there in July. And on August 5th, I received a heart. And so I didn't, I mean, it was a little bit of a process. How, how old were you at the time? 36. 36 years old. Did anything about your, I mean, you're really healthy, right? You're, you're running competitively. You're biking. You're doing all these things. Nothing to indicate that you would have... Uh, a heart attack or heart failure, particularly at 36? No, nothing. Uh, actually, I had like a week before I had a physical with the Air Force Base or whatever. And the guy was like, wow, you're in great shape. I was, I was in as great a shape as you. I don't know. Maybe that was a curse or something. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know. Um, the previous year, I took the anthrax series of shots like two different times because they lost our, they lost our shot records. And so my doctor's think that potentially there could have been an issue with my heart and the vaccination. We had, we had, we had two other soldiers that had pericarditis kind of issues or whatever, and couldn't mob in 2004. And since then they've stopped doing the anthrax shot. And so, um, you, you can't really go backwards in time. So I don't know. All I know is you got to be resilient because you can't curl up then you got to keep on going. Well, so talk about that a little bit. You've, I mean, that's a, 
<laughs> there's not, it, to me, it doesn't seem that there's anything more invasive or like fundamentally shocking than having your heart taken out and somebody else's heart put in. So can you talk about that process a little bit? I mean, I have never met anyone <laughs> aside from you who's had a heart transplant and talk about the recovery process too. Um, so I was in Salt Lake City. I was in the ICU. So if you're in the ICU, you kind of move to the top of the list and you don't really, I mean, you know, you need a transplant, but you don't think about it as much as that. You just think about like, okay, well, Tomorrow morning, I'll have raisin bran. I mean, you know, I'm gonna have some coffee. I'll, you know, uh, I guess all you can do is pray and, you know, hope hope for the best. And um, my doctor was pretty convinced that there was a lot of healthy people out there. So if something bad happens to one of them, then that's a good chance to get a good heart. They do have really good five, 10, 15 year prognosis. So that was a good place to be. And I was at LDS in Salt Lake City, Utah. And my doctor was a guy named Dr. Dale Renland, who's actually one of the founding fathers now in the LDS church. And so I saw him every day and he was pretty, he really believed in his job and he believed in people and he believed in medical intervention. And he was pretty convinced that, that they would get a heart for me and it, it would be great and my prognosis would be great. And he would send me forth to do great things and tell people that I'm not disabled. Yeah. And so uh, I didn't really think about it too much until I found out, you know, like, hey, today's your day. We found a heart. It's out in Montana. Uh, the person passed away. Uh, they were an organ donor. Uh, the surgeon went to get the heart. He, he's got it. He says, everything is great. We're going to prep you for surgery. And so then they wheel you in and, you know, they do surgery and you say goodbye to your wife. And then you wake up the next day and you got a new heart. And the the heart you you got was if did I if I read the story right it's it was like a 19 year old, right? It was 19. 19 year old. 19 year old from uh, Montana. So uh the way the hearts work, I'm a big guy like 63 and it's a time, like 200 pounds at the time. And so it was probably from a guy cuz it has to go in the same size cavity. Mm -hmm. But other than that, I don't know the name, I don't know I don't know anything and uh everybody always asks like, "Hey, do you you know, do you like chicken fajitas now and you didn't like them before or something <laughs> or some crazy thing like that? And the answer to that is no, probably. Yeah. Um, I've written them a couple thank yous and the way it works is they have to be receptive. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know, now it's been 15, 16 years. I think as a parent, I, I would probably want to know like, hey, the person that got my son's heart or whatever is doing great things. He's gone forward with his life. He's seen his kids graduate from high school, seen them graduate from college, all that kind of stuff. I mean, I think as a parent, we would all want to know that, but you know, like I said, the choice is up to them and maybe they, they're, maybe they're still not ready for that. I don't know. It could be. I mean, I can't imagine that everybody's going to handle that differently. And I can't imagine many things that are worse than, than losing a child. So I guess I can understand that. But in, but in your case, I mean, you're, you're 36 at the time. So what sort of things did you get to experience? You talked about like seeing kids grow up and things like that, that if that hadn't been available or if that, if you hadn't been able to get that transplant, what sort of things have you seen that you wouldn't have seen? Oh, I would have died. All transpired. I would have died in 2005. Yeah. So then that would have been it. So your life would be, I mean, 
that would be it. So whatever it was, it'd be then. So how old were your kids then? Um, so 2005, I had 10 year old and eight year old. Yeah. Is that weigh on you quite a bit at the time thinking about, I mean, you said you kind of didn't, you just kind of went about your day, but was that somewhere in the back of your mind that I can't leave these kids behind? I spent all day, I spent all day researching on the internet, like, you know, can, trying to figure out if I could recover without a transplant, trying mm-hmm. to figure out where do I need to go to, for, to have the best surgeon? Where do I need to go to have the best prognosis? You know, even in 2005, even with like, I think it was like dial-up service or whatever, you can still <laughs> read medical articles and stuff like that. And I, I'm the kind of person that like, I, I want to be, I want, I want to be resilient or whatever. And I want to find the best prognosis. I tell people all the time, like, you know, if they're like, Hey, my knee, I, whatever, get the, find the best doctor you can find. Cause there's one out there yeah. and there's somebody out there doing, doing great things and you just got to find them. You know, they, they actually now if, in places over in, in England, they leave your heart, your, your old heart in, <clears throat> and then they put in a transplanted heart. And so they, so the thought process is, and they've, they've had good success where if your old heart doesn't have the pressure of pumping 24 seven, it'll recover. And they've, they've had them where they've recovered and they've been able to take out the other heart and put it in somebody else. So that it's more, it sounds weird, but it's more than a one-time use, right? They, do they then use that heart yeah, they try for to. someone else and tell their heart recovers and yep. wow, I had no idea. It's, that's just crazy stuff. And so yeah. when I was, when I was, so the reason your heart, you get into heart failure. I mean, I'm not, I'm not Dr. Hagley or anybody, but the, your heart, once it's damaged and it has scar tissue, it's just like scar tissue on your wrist or wherever you have yeah. has been cut. Right. So it's solid. So it doesn't have any blood flow. Well, the heart knows like, Oh, I'm not working good. So the heart is a muscle. It tries to grow. Mm-hmm. So the heart tries to grow on you. So then what it does is you start having regurge from all your valves and stuff like that because your heart muscle has grown faster than than the things around it, but it doesn't do an effect. It, it still can't do an effective pump. Yeah. So but so by them putting another heart or some other mechanism in there to make it easier for your heart to pump, it it can potentially allow it to recover on its own. Wow. I I had that's so interesting. I'm always fascinated by what they can do and, and even in just a short period of time, the advances that are made in in, yeah. in medicine. I would be the guy to sign up for the trial. I, I guarantee you in 2005, if, if they said, hey, you got a 50% chance of living the rest of your life, whatever, and being great, or you have a 50% chance, but it, you know, this could be the, you know, a not come to a good end. I would be the guy that would say, let's do it because I want... I'm not going to be that guy. I'm going to be the one to take the newest to make the, it. I'm going to be the one to make it. Yeah. You know, and, and, and you did, and you have your recovery period. And, and we talked earlier that having a transplant requires anti-rejection drugs and things like that. But you, you were still in the military at this time. I was still active duty. I was, I was on the AGR program. So they, they took care of me pretty good. So 10 days after my transplant, they, came and said, yeah, we're, we, we decided that you can handle your pills. We're going to let you go. <clears throat> you can't go back to Kansas, but you can 
go stay in a hotel with your wife or whatever. She was working from out there. She works for DCI. They're a great company, always great to her. And so she went out there and she worked and my coworker brought my bicycle. And so I asked the, the doctor, was like, do you have any questions? I said, hey, when can I ride my bike? And my wife was like, oh my God, you can see the look on her face. <laughs> She's probably right? horrified, right? She's like, oh my God. And so uh, the doctor was like, hey, you can ride your bike. You're good. I put you back together, John. You go, you go, you go ride your bike. And my wife goes, you do know that he's clipped onto his pedals and all that kind of stuff. And the doctor was like, turn out the fall. <laughs> and so I went back like 10 days, 11 days. I went back and I had my bike and I had my stuff and they got a lot of bike trails. And so I had a friend out there and my friend would supervise. And so we would go ride. I think I, I rode 60 miles in the mountains north of Salt Lake about one month after transplant. Wow. Wow. And everything was fine. Everything was fine. Every time I, so he told me if my heart rate got up to like 160 to let it kind of recover. And so I would just get off my bike and stand there and wait a little bit and the heart rate would go back down. I'd jump on my bike and continue on. Wow. Well, at that maybe time, I'm not that smart, Jason. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's funny. That seems like a remarkably short period of time to be back on your bike after something so traumatic. Um, but you, in that in that process too, you wanted to stay in the military. And I, in the stories that I read, the, the military had some, or the army had some concerns about, you know, keeping a guy. They had they had a lot of concerns. They have a lot of concerns about immunosuppressant meds and uh they would they said oh you're gonna retire all this kind of stuff and you know i was thinking about it one day i thought about what the doctor said like hey don't don't let him label you as being disabled and <clears throat> i was looking in the mirror one day probably shaving or whatever and i was like you know they're gonna make me retire they're gonna they're only gonna give me half my check i think i'd like all my check I don't feel like I'm disabled. I can do my job. So I set about to fight their, we're, we're going to retire you deal. And you, know, and you the appealed end, it. I appealed you, it. Yeah. And in the end, I won because in Army standards, like the gold standard of the Army is, can you shoot, fire, and communicate? So that, that means, can you shoot a weapon? <clears throat> can you run and do whatever? And can you communicate? Can you, you know, can you carry a rucksack? Can you do a PT test? Can you do all, all the physical, physical and mental requirements of being a soldier? And if the answer is yes, then the answer is yes. Yeah. And so the answer was always yes. And so if they would have done a better job getting, getting rid of me when I was sick, then the answer wouldn't have been yes. But they, they didn't do, they didn't get me gone. They didn't get they, rid of you quick enough. They didn't get rid of me quick enough. <laughs> <clears throat> so then they're stuck with me because by, by then, my my heart is good, and so, and you're able, and they have no valid reason then to get rid of you because at that point you're able no, to do all the things you need. I, to do. I was able to do all the things, and the doctors were like, "Well, well, well," and so, you know, I became the only one, and I and I was the only one. I'm still the only one that they ever let stay. Like in the whole, yeah, yeah. That that was in the all story the, too. All the services, even to this day, when when I went to Fort Fort Campbell, they they. Because uh, I was deployed over there, they're like, "Hey, you need to go to the go down to the TMC, the True Medical Center, and that's where you're going to meet your little doctor or whatever PA for the year, 
right? So I went down there. I filled out all the little paper, like pre pre-existing conditions. I mean, you know, all the paperwork. Uh-huh. I filled out the stuff and the guy was like, he must have thought that I was a Fruit Loop and wanted to go to the mental ward because I wrote down there like heart transplant. And he was like, heart transplant? You can't be in the army. And I, I was like, well, uh, my name is on here. It says Fairbanks. It says army. I said, I, I didn't know I couldn't be in the army. <laughs> I said, I'm here. I'm getting paid. And he he, he was like, he was like, yeah, you know, I'm going to have to do some research on this. Come back tomorrow. So he, he probably Googled the same thing or whatever. Probably and saw found the same, the same story I did. Hey, he probably found the same story you did and read it and was like, wow, I got I got the unicorn. The unicorn's here. Yeah. Because I think the story said there there were maybe at that time, at the time the story was written, 10 active duty military people who had who, had heart had transplants, had but all of them except you had been re- retired, retired after that. Yeah. 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 And it's still the same. They ha- There haven't been any more. Um, I, I helped a couple guys that have, that, uh, I, that, that have, uh, had heart incidents and had to have AICDs, which is, you know, a defibrillator. And so they, so they previously, they were making them get out and they, they found me via the story or whatever. And I told them the same thing I just said, like, Hey, if you feel like you're not disabled then fight. Yeah. Cause if you don't fight, they're just going to retire you. And so they, they fought it and. A couple of them have won it and a couple of them not, but you know. But it's nice to be able to help people navigate some of those pathways, right? <clears throat> when you understand yep. you've done it and you know how to do it, it's nice to be able to help other people along Always. The way. I mean, that's that's how we are as humans. And, you know, I think that we need to help other people. Yeah. So speaking of helping other people, we'll forward to this summer <laughs> and you're riding with your cycling group. Yep. Just north of town, and, and anybody locally will know Hendrix is one of those pretty common bike routes too. We we pretty typically common. head out Hendrix, go up to eighty second and and then go from there. Um and you're about thirty sixth Avenue just on the north edge of town, and you get hit by a guy on a motorcycle, throws you off the bike. And a nurse lives right there and she comes out and starts. She was actually you help. just getting off from work. Really? So she was like, just got out of her car and heard the commotion or whatever. And it was right at the end of her driveway. And uh, Lacey came out there and she was like, you know, hey, what are you? And I was like, you know, one foot was unclipped and the other one, you know, I was fighting to get my other foot unclipped or whatever. And like, she was talking to me and I was like, well, I think I can get up. I said, I don't think it was that bad. And well, she, of course she was you, like, of course you were. Huh? <laughs> of course you were. She was like, <laughs> She she was like, no, 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 you need to stay where you're at. And so she was like, you need to stay where you're at. Just stay where you're at. I'm a nurse. Well, she was wearing her scrubs. Uh-huh. I'm a nurse, this and that. And so, by, you know, my buddies were all right on the scene too. And so um, I didn't really know it because it's really hard to see like the outside of your left ankle, you know, because it was below the actual ankle bone. But the guy's foot, foot peg went into my foot. Oh, and so I take Eloquus, which is the only thing that I said to her was like, hey, I take Eloquus. If if I like, if, I, don't, I don't think I hit my head or anything, but if anything crazy happens, make sure you tell them that I take Eloquus. Is that a blood thinner? It's a blood thinner. Okay. Yeah. So <clears throat> I did not know that my ankle was bleeding that bad because I couldn't see it. But she was like, oh, you're, you're, 
your ankle is pretty bad. You need to not move your foot. And she was like, I, I have a wound kit and I have this and that in the car. And so she directed her husband to go and get the stuff. And then when he came back out and they had a pillow, I'd like put my head on the pillow and um, they instructed my buddy Tyler Canoxted to like apply pressure and all that kind of stuff or whatever, you know, meanwhile they called 911 and the yeah. police had showed up and the, <clears throat> the guy also crashed. And so, cause if you hit me, you're probably going to crash too. So, yeah. so he crashed and Justin, the guy, uh, Lacey's husband, he went and grabbed the guy in the motorcycle and brought him back. I could see out of the corner of my eye, but she wouldn't let me get up, you know, cause I was like, she didn't know what, she didn't know if I'd done anything to my spinal cord. I, I mean, I don't know, but, um, yeah, at that I, point, nobody knows. You've been you've been thrown off your bike. You've yeah. been knocked over. Um, yeah. And so at that point, you don't know what's really going on. Yeah, they on. don't know. They're just waiting. Yeah. They're waiting for the ambulance, whatever. But he went and got the guy. And then the guy took off and tried to run again. And about that time, the police showed up. And then about that time, the ambulance came. So those guys. And then my wife showed up because my Garmin, you know, your Garmin has got that crazy, you've been in a crash thing. Oh, yeah. So my Garmin was like, beep, beep, beep. And I sent my wife an email. Or a text or something like, hey, totally. huh. yeah, your husband or whatever is your Garmin person. You're the person of contact and your person's not moving anymore. So I'm sure she tried to call me. I didn't answer my phone. And uh, so she, she came and so she was there and she saw him by the time that they put me in the back of the ambulance. But when, when, when it was all said and done, you had a broken ankle, a broken, broken ankle, wrist. broken wrist, four ribs. And a big hematoma on my hip. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so did when we're cycling, sometimes some of us have mirrors. Did you have a mirror on? No, you, I had all the flashing lights and stuff. Yeah. I like riding with uh, my man Mike Loudon because he's always got a mirror. So it's always kind of nice. But no, I, I did not have a mirror. So the, you're just riding and then you just feel the impact of this motorcycle I, hitting like you. Like five seconds, like less than five seconds. You know how you got... you the sound of like a, you know, the weed eater sound or whatever. Mm -hmm. I heard that, you know, and I didn't know if the guy was going to come by me. I didn't know what I had like two seconds. And then, and then like you feel a wave go over you and you hear like bouncing plastic yeah, or whatever, because you know, your computer falls off your bike and it's bouncing down the road. Sometimes it like isolates all the sound or something. It does something, it's something weird. And, um, <clears throat> yeah, then he 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 went about another thirty yards and he crashed, and so mm. so you were you so you go you go to the hospital they they fix you up. How long were you in the hospital that time? I was in the hospital for a week because the problem is is like <clears throat> it was my left ankle and my right wrist and my and the ribs were on my left side, so I couldn't like pull myself up out of bed hardly. Oh, okay, yeah. So then they put me up in their rehab thing to kind of figure out like, okay, well, how's this guy going to be? They weren't going to let me go home unless I could kind of take care of myself. So that took about a week and then they let you it took go about home. a week and then let me go home. Then, then my wife babysat me. So, and then how long after that was it before you were back on your bike? <clears throat> uh, I had, I had to wear the wrist brace and the, and the ankle deal for six weeks. And then the doctor said, Hey, you can, you know, resume, activity be careful or whatever so to me that means get back on your bike 
you know, uh, my bike was broken. So I, the only bike I had was a gravel bike, which I guess is okay. So we were, we, you know, I started riding, I went back to riding on gravel roads. So I ride with a group. There's like three or four of us. So they go out and do gravel. <clears throat> yeah. Do you find gravel around here? We have a lot of sand. Sand is north, gravel south. Gotcha. I'm going to have to remember yes, that. Yes, remember that. That's my that's my neck. I've got my eye on my next bike as a gravel bike. Everybody it, does. It's, uh, what is that, N plus one? N plus one. The number of, the perfect number of bikes is the number you have now plus one. Yeah. I've got about 10 or 11 maybe. Really? Everybody in my family rides the same size bike. Oh, well, that works. So I'll never have to sell a bike. I can just give it to another just kid. Just swap them around. Swap them around. My daughter rides, her boyfriend rides, my wife rides. They don't, well, my daughter and her boyfriend ride, they race and do stuff like that. Okay. But So I just keep them. And then I, then I have a vintage bike and I have a mountain bike and a gravel bike and a road bike and a time, time trial bike. You know, people who have, have hobbies or habits, they have stuff. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It doesn't matter whether you're a fisherman or a golfer or a cyclist or a bowler or whatever. You probably all got stuff. You get into it. I remember when I first got into cycling and and then I went, it was probably a year later, I went down to Harley's, the bike shop, and I said, I thought I was buying a bike from you. I didn't realize I was buying a habit. Um, buying but a I, lifestyle. I was buying a lifestyle. a lifestyle. That's right. Yeah. yeah. But you do, you start to acquire all these other things. You start thinking about the other bikes that you want and one bike's good for one application, but not another. So you start thinking about all those. And then you got hot weather gear, cold weather, weather gear, gear, rain gear, all the stuff, everything. Yeah. And then if you get into bike packing, like I've done a little bit of that, then you, you have to buy the big panniers and, and all the gear that you want to pack with you, which I find that to be a lot of fun too. So, after that, you, you're back to normal. You're riding your bike, uh, doing what you did before. But you also, I can't remember exactly when this happened, but you kind of lobbied the city of Hutch to issue a proclamation for Lacey for kind of coming out and helping you and, and doing maybe more than, I, it was great, but it was more than was expected of her. That's what I would think. And so... You know what? Maybe that has to do with my 33 years in the Army. Maybe that has to do with my sitting on city council. Maybe that has to do with who I am as a person. I feel like people should be rewarded for good behavior. And I feel like that's that's a good thing. She went out of her way. She didn't have to do that. Mm -hmm. She didn't have to do any of that. And so by being able to, you know, I called the the mayor mm -hmm. in Hutchinson here and said, Hey, what do you think? I think this is a good thing. Do you think we can do something about it? And he, he agreed a hundred percent because, you know, there's, there's so many times that you read in the paper, like, you know, whatever, somebody's angry about the tenant association or the whatever association, you just, whatever people are angry. You know what? It's always good to be able to point to something and say, Hey, this is a positive thing about Hutchinson. P people are willing to come out and, and there's always somebody willing to help you out. And, and if something bad happens to you, there, there could potentially be somebody out there to help. And then maybe, maybe by recognizing her, some, somebody else is more, more than likely to stop and help somebody on the side of the road as opposed to just drive right by them. Yeah. 
You know? Yeah, I think it's easy for us to focus on some of those negative things, and it's important to say, "Look, somebody did something good, and we need to we need to give that. We need to talk as loudly about that as we do about the things we don't like." Yeah, or maybe even louder. even louder. Maybe even louder. Yeah, you know, because that's what we want. We we want people to be like that. We want people to be like you, you know, and give of your time and give of and give because you know if we don't have people who are willing to give, then everybody's out there as a taker. Yeah. Well, speaking of given time, you're, you mentioned it earlier, you're on the South Hutchinson City Council, and you've been doing that for two year, about two years now. Um, what kind of led you to want to do that? <laughs> so when I retired in, in uh, 19, their uh, superintendent down there, James Dole, also mows yards, and he, was, he, mows my na- he mowed my neighbor's yard. He also rides bikes. So we have a little bit of a cross. I mean, I, I know James a little bit. And so he would stop over at my neighbor and he was like, come on, John, we need some young people on city council. I know you're not doing anything. You need to run for city council. <laughs> you need to run for city council. And it's kind of weird because my license plates expire in May, right? So I was down the, paying for my license plates and there was a sign and it said like, city voting office or whatever it is. I mean, you probably are familiar with whatever that sign said. And I was like, you know what? Let, let me go down here. Cause James told me that June was the deadline uh-huh. and my plates expired in May. So I was down there prior to the deadline. And, uh, so you just went over to the clerk's office I just and, went over filed? To the clerk's and filed <laughs> while you're paying your tags. While I was paying my tags. I was like, you know what? For I think it was like thirty five bucks. Uh-huh. I said for thirty five bucks, what the heck? Yeah. What is it? One night every two weeks or whatever? It'll be okay, right? Um, I did it, and like uh, you, it's South Hutch, you really don't have to run per se because there's not a lot of people that want to do that. They ha- they have had some issues that I actually knew nothing about because mm-hmm. I was gone, and <clears throat> I have enjoyed being on the South Hutch City Council. Have you learned quite a bit? Since, about, since you came about, onto the council, one of the things I found is uh, in, in the legislature is all these things I didn't know anything about. These other parts of the world that I may have known that much, just a little tiny bit about, but as you get into it, you start to learn a lot more about how things work and how they fit about together. Water. Maybe learn about water. You learn about water. Learn <laughs> yeah. about infrastructure. Learn, learn about, about drainage. <laughs> yeah. So we learned about because we dealt with all these kind of things we're currently dealing with water and we have dealt with we've we've tried to be good for our citizens in regard to the floodplain and some different things like that and we've you know we've we've paid for some you know uh engineering and some different things or whatever and so we we feel on our city council pretty pretty good about trying to be good to the citizens or whatever and so trying to do do the right thing we're all pretty happy about living in South Hutch. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, it's a great, like, unknown community. I always joke, like, come to South Hutch, we spray for mosquitoes. <laughs> right? I used to live over on West 28th Street. You go outside in the summer some sometimes, and the mosquitoes would about carry you away. You couldn't hardly get anybody to spray for them. You couldn't hardly do anything. South Hutch, they're spraying every you, – you could probably call down to the office – and say, hey, there's a lot of mosquitoes in my neighborhood, and they'll spray the next week. Yeah. You know? So I, I just, South Hutch, it, you know, 
it's 15 minutes closer for me to work yeah and they spray for mosquitoes so for me it's a win it's a win that's a it sounds like you found a home there (laughs) (laughs) i did (laughs) well as we kind of come towards the end of of things here i i want to uh i guess i want to ask you about like i as we have this conversation and and we've talked about all these things and i said at the beginning that the word that that i think of first with you is this resilience um and I think as you talk about some of the things you've done in your life, it's pretty clear that you you just kind of have this attitude of resilience. It's more not just the saying I'm I'm going to be resilient, but it's an attitude too. Can you talk about that a little bit about the importance of having that sort of outlook on life and having that determination? I mean, when I think about it, it's like you're really driven to say I'm not going to let this thing stop me, and it doesn't really matter what it is. Like, kind of, where does that come from, or or how did you develop that, or is that just done from living? And maybe all of the above. We I talk about it with my friends about sometimes what's in your DNA is in your DNA. I mean, I don't know. By joining the army when you're 17, is kind of is still young and a little bit impressionable, and so you kind of get that maybe beat down a little bit, but then you realize like, okay, well, I can't let anything beat me down. And then once you decide that in life, then you're going to be resilient. Uh, In the Army, we try pretty hard to do, it's called MRT, Master Resiliency Training. So we do it with all the young soldiers and we try to do it and we try to teach them to, uh, it's like an iceberg, you know, Mm -hmm. look at the look at look at the good and look at below the what you know what's going on below the surface and uh try try to try to get the good out in things and you know maybe i've tried to do that i've talked to these resiliency we they send out trainers mm-hmm. and they're all like hey john this and that they try to get me to be a trainer a couple different times they're like yeah you probably don't need the training you are you are resilient you are the you are what we want or whatever and it's like well i mean everybody can be this way. I think it's a mindset. You know, if you get up in the morning and say, I'm going to have a great day, I think that say hi to somebody, have a nice cup of coffee, you know, and, and try to, and try to think about life as like, what can I do? What can I do to make my work better? What can I do to make my house better? What can I do to, you know, to make my conversations with people better? Uh, I mean, it's probably something that I've developed over the last 30 years or whatever, I guess. I mean, I don't know to answer your question. It's, it's very difficult to say, how does, how does, how does somebody get that way? I've tried to get my kids, you know, my wife and people who, who work for me in the army. I try to get them to like, Hey, you know what? Be about change. Don't be about the problem. You know, if you, if you identify a problem, work to fix it, come see me, help, we'll help you. And we'll work to fix it, you know, <clears throat> get on the board. You know, I would say for people in Hutch, like if you're up, if you're upset with whatever is going on in Hutchinson or whatever, sign and get on a board. I'm sure you would say <laughs> the exact same thing. It's the whole Teddy Roosevelt man in the arena speech, right? If you, you can, you can, if you yeah. don't like something, you should try yeah. to change it. So wh- like way back, not to, not to be like, uh, I can't even remember what year, but like, I did the triathlon out at the out at the uh, park. Mm-hmm. There weren't any kids, right? I came down here from Nebraska in 2004, and <clears throat> up in Nebraska, every time there was an adult tri- triathlon, they had kids. So I was like, "Oh, okay, they don't have any kids." I wonder why they don't have any kids. So I went down to the wreck, 
when I was paying for something and I asked somebody and they got Ted and uh-huh. he came out there and I was like, hey, why don't you have any kids? He's like, well, this and that and this and that. And, and uh, he goes, but you know what? That doesn't sound like a bad idea. We got a board for that. If you would like to come down and be on the board and voice what you feel, we'll see what happens. So I was like, you know what? You're right. I, I should always take take my own advice and be about change. Yeah. And so I went down. I sat on that board. I I looked at all the people, you know, Bob up to graph and uh-huh. all, all those guys and said, hey, this is what we need to do. We need to have kids. All these adults that do triathlons, their kids want to do it too. And I said, if you think about in the, in the spirit of the community, if you think about kids, what kid doesn't want to ride a block, you know, around the block. Mm-hmm. What kid doesn't swim in the pool, and what kid can't run a couple hundred yards? So, bang, salty pup was started. There we go. Yeah. <clears throat> and so, you know, anybody in the community can do that. Set on the vitality board, or set on whatever interests you, or whatever that they have gardening board. They got they got all kinds of stuff. Yeah, there's a board for a lot of different things. There's a board you, for a lot of things. If you're interested in anything, you can find a way. But uh, to make a difference, yeah, we need to we need to we need to be about we need to be about it, because if you're not, then everybody then everybody just is is taking. Then it's then it's a lot of people just pointing out the problems and not trying to find. The yeah, solutions. yeah, you can get on Gossip Hutchinson and see that if you want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Right. Well, yeah. thanks for coming on today. Thanks for talking to me about your life and your experiences. I I, I was really glad to dive into that a little bit more and appreciate you uh, sharing that with everyone who listens to to this. Hey, thank you, Jason. I really appreciate it as well. And it's always good talking to you. And you know what? Maybe you can ride a little faster than I just, <laughs> <laughs> Get a gravel bike and come south. That'll work. I can do that. Come south. Come south and ride with us. There's a bunch of gravel rides. My team puts on some rides, races and whatever. And so uh, the 25 miler is just a ride in the country or whatever and usually they're pretty good pretty good places for an adult beverage and a cheese cheeseburger afterward i like that we'll do it thanks thanks john i'd like to thank a few of the people who have helped make that podcast and hutch possible my son mitchell probst wrote and recorded the music for the show jenny Brigette put together some great graphics and promotional art and chris acker helps overcome my mistakes to produce a great sounding product every episode That podcast in Hutch is made possible through a collaboration between the Hutchison Arts and Culture Collective and Salt City Sound. They're working to bring resources and infrastructure to support art, music, and storytelling in our community. If you have an idea for your own podcast, reach out to them at podcasts at saltcitysound.net. If you enjoy that podcast in Hutch, be sure to subscribe and share it with all your friends. You can also help support this production by subscribing to thatguyandhutch.substack.com or by emailing me at thatguyandhutch at gmail.com to learn about sponsorship opportunities. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next week. A Salt City Sound production.